Well, thank you everyone for joining us today at the visas.ai attorney collab. We're joined by some wonderful attorneys and non-attorneys, including myself. Um, today's spotlight attorney is attorney Ingrid Perez. Welcome in. Um, I'll give a quick Hi. introduction about Thanks her and then me. I'll um, pass the mic thank to you. everyone, starting with her, of course. Um, Attorney Perez, thanks for joining us. You're the founder of IVP Immigration, a law firm that supports people through their whole transition to America. Your firm was, of course, founded by you, um, a fellow immigrant who understands immigrants' needs. The cool thing that stood out to me is that you speak English, Portuguese, and Spanish, um, which mm -hmm. is awesome. So welcome in. Do you usually serve multiple markets or are your clients mostly Portuguese or Spanish speaking? Yeah, thank you so much. So I am, uh, I was born in Brazil, but I've lived in the U.S. since I was about nine years old. So um, I'm very Americanized and um, I grew up in New York. And when I was an attorney in New York, I never really had Brazilian clients because I was a public defender for many years. And then once I moved to Florida and transitioned completely into immigration is where I really rediscovered my Brazilian self <laughs> and uh, improved my Portuguese because it had, you know, gone really badly for many years by not, you know, having Brazilian clients and be able to, you know, speak Portuguese on a daily basis. But right now, um, I, I have multiple markets because um, I, I have a lot of you know, um, English only speakers or people from all over the world. But just by being a Brazilian American attorney, I get a lot of Brazilian clients. And, and because I can speak Spanish and, and where I am, there's also a huge Hispanic population. So it's very helpful to have the languages. And I think the cultural connection in this, you know, in this practice of law is really important as well. So it helps. Excellent. Where, where are you based out of, if I may ask? I'm in Orlando. I'm in Orlando. Oh. I'm in Orlando too. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. that until now. That's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely, that's something I, I always mention and, and I, I talk about is that Florida in general is just a whole different world from all the other <laughs> states that when we usually have these conversations and I, I hear all these different attorneys um, speak about their markets, I just think it's very different here and it's unique. Also, John, we spoke recently about EB5s and E2s. I truly think, and this is not based on data, it's just based on my opinion, that Orlando, and Attorney Perez, correct me if I'm wrong, has a lot of investors that come in and, mm -hmm. and you know, buy real estate, and most of them are usually Brazilian. We have a huge population that comes here and, and, and invests. So that's the beauty about Orlando is that I feel that there are these emerging markets that have a different type of a visa, you know, so yeah. what, what visas do you usually do in immigration? I do a lot of family based cases. So I would say, um, uh, you know, about 60% of my practice is family immigration, which I consider to be taking the client from initial green card removal of conditions up until they become a U.S. citizen. So I do a lot of that. And then once they become U.S. citizens, we can help with parents and maybe other family members, which is really nice. And then I do maybe about 30, um, I would say about 20, 20% employment based. So I, I love working on EB2 and IWs and EB1s. Um, I, I find that with immigration, sometimes it's you don't get an opportunity to create 
an argument and, and write persuasively all the time because it can be very technical. So I like these cases because I love to write and research and just get to know these clients who do really amazing things. And I feel like it's so rewarding to help bring somebody to the United States who's going to do something really, really interesting and, and really good for the country. So I like doing those cases a lot. I do some E2s as well. Um, you know, and I do quite a, quite a few VAWAs as well. I like doing those humanitarian cases just because I, it's, it's, you know, I come from public interest. So I like to, to do those types of cases. So that's what I do. And I love obviously doing citizenships, you know, naturalizations. It's really great. I don't do removals. I refer those cases out, um, you know, being, being a former public defender, I was in court all the time. And now I just like to be in my office doing the cases, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I refer, I, I refer those cases out to attorneys who are, who are specialized in that. I think the clients would be much better served that way. Well, that's wonderful. I think we should disconnect from the script and, and regular questions and actually um, go off script and open the conversation to attorney John and Ashley and Yesh. I'd love to give you guys the mic to ask uh, Ingrid questions because I think there's a lot here. I'd love to jump in if it's okay. Uh, Ingrid, love, love the, the practice you've chosen. Um, you know, we all find immigration in our own way. Um, I, I hung my shingle right out of law school and took anything. Um, and I would, uh, I just got out of different bodies of law as they uh, um, uh, just didn't interest me anymore. I, I, I was on the other side of the criminal case and I had a, uh, a murder case, um, attempted murder with a member of the Mexican mafia who had a 27 year deal on the table and his attorney didn't show up. And his nephew was in law school with my brother and they called me and said, can you come up to the courthouse? And I'm like, when? They said, look, now. So I go up, I get uh, I get the judge to give me a month uh, to prepare for the jury trial and uh, had a three day jury trial. And I walked in completely not guilty uh, because they had a they had a they had a tape recording uh, of a 911 call and they went first. And and when we slowed down the 911 call, we could see my client offering to help this person who said he was trying to run him over with a car. And uh, so get him out, not guilty. And then the guy just said, I'm not paying you. <laughs> just, oh, man. There's nothing you can do about it. And then I was, uh, and then he moved like down the street from me. And um, I had small children. Um, and I'm like, I'm never doing another criminal case. I just, I'm out. Right. And so it was little by little, you know, I, I, I got out of divorces because I was tired of going through divorces with people. They were really tough and found immigration. And what a wonderful body of law. I mean, it, they, immigrants, uh, whether, whatever visa they get, are so happy uh, for what we accomplish for them. They give us way too much credit, especially green cards. Um, you know, they really they're over the moon about it. And I love it. And and I, I got lucky to, to to cut my teeth on EB once. Right. I was a. I was a rugby player when what rugby went pro. I was actually in New Zealand on a tour when um, they made the decision while we were there. And I did the first green card for a pro rugby player. And um, he was in Aspen, Colorado. And uh, and when we did it, my phone starts ringing off the hook. Right. So um, I started representing people around the country. I knew that you could do that. Uh, but immediately I get this national practice around sports because this guy's in Aspen, it went to then skiing. I met a bunch of Brazilians in Aspen, by the way. They uh, <laughs> huge. There's a huge community of Aspen uh, snowboarders that were surfers, right? 
never no, no snowflake in Brazil, but there's this whole pocket of them, and they they had a reality show called Snow Mess, and uh, they were just wonderful, fun people uh, that I got to know really well, and we did a bunch of visas for them, and um, yeah, it's funny how you fall into this and how it how it grows, but um, yeah, not nice to hear about how you got into yours, and we all find our own uh, pathway to it, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was in New York, right? And then my my husband and I decided to move our family to Orlando because his family lives here. Mm. And I was just thinking, you know, I've always wanted to transition into immigration. And for me, it just felt very natural because I'm an immigrant. And I knew that, you know, the the market here would be great for me with, with the growing Brazilian population and lots of Hispanics and just people that I could really relate to. And then the other added bonus, obviously, I would not have to take the bar again, right? So that right. was a nice, a nice. Bonus. Oh, really? So is it? Yeah. I'm, I, I don't. I'm not very educated about that side. So you have to retake the bar for some parts of law if you choose to practice. So immigration is federal law, and I think bankruptcy is the other area of law where you can practice with, you know, any state license anywhere in the country. Um, okay. So it's I don't need to be barred in Florida to practice immigration law exclusively, mm. which is really, really nice. So you see a lot of attorneys with licenses from other states move across the country and open their immigration exclusive practices. And they're able to practice yeah. as an attorney with their license, you know, in good standing from the state where they were barred. So that's a really nice, nice plus. And when I tell, I, I told this to some law students and even other lawyers, I did this one panel one time and everybody was just shocked and surprised. They had no idea. It's, so it's, it's really nice you know, I, to that flexibility. I fell into mine like like I described, but my mentor um, was the longest serving uh, immigration attorney in Chinatown in San Francisco, and he knew he was going to be an immigration attorney. I mean, he went to law school. He knew that was going to he was going to serve that market. So he went to to uh, law school in California, which has a ridiculously tough bar. So he yeah. went up and got barred in Wyoming. He found the easiest bar you could do in America and went and got his bar license there and then uh, practiced in San Francisco his entire career. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can play those odds if you want. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, um, being an immigration lawyer now, you just, I, I, I do really find the immigration lawyer body just really wonderful mm -hmm. because it's us against the man, right? That's so right. <laughs> all in it together. And I think people are very willing to collaborate and willing to help. And also we know what the negative consequence of having a case denied or, or yeah. making a mistake. And, you know, it's, it's often something that you can't undo, you know, immigration is unforgiving that way. So we, we really try to help each other out. And I think that's so, so wonderful, really, you know, whether it's with a legal question or maybe just a process or a tool, yeah. a system, a technology, you know, a, a you know, a, I don't know, a business plan, right. Or whatever, whatever it is. Right. It's very, it's really I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's really what's at the heart of what we're doing today. And, uh, you know, I told you about my mentor, um, very kind guy that took me under his wing and would help me do cases, got me into all sorts of different type of immigration I didn't know on different parts of the country. And um, I knew him, but I really got to know him better as an adult. And we were in different parts of America. He was in San Francisco. I was in Oklahoma. We would meet at AILA conferences and I, I didn't know about AILA at the beginning because I wasn't in immigration at the beginning. Um, I mean, I got into it in my first year, but I mean, I, at, when I first started, I didn't know that I was going to do this. And so I found that that organization was wonderful about helping for exactly what you said. We all have the same opposing counsel, right? Mm -hmm. And, and we want to share 
ideology. So that's where the idea of what we're doing now came from. And this thing we call collab is that, right? We, we, I, I always thought of ALO as a thing that we go to once a year and you get a little nugget. What if we could do this all the time? You know, yeah. what if we could help other lawyers all the time be better lawyers? So what, what our evolution is, is that we created online visas was the name of my website. And then I created it as its own company to build a technology. And we built this technology called visas.ai now, and it effectively did what the other tech weren't doing for us, right? We, I've gone through every type of form filling package there's been out there for, for years. It was INS Zoom and I would go to them and I'd quit and then I'd come back or whatever. And so what they didn't do, which is really interesting because of your background, is I litigated also. Um, and as a litigator, every argument you made, you had to back up with authority because there's somebody on the other side that was going to come at you with, you know, their own arguments, right? And you couldn't just do it. And I found so many immigration attorneys were putting in table of contents and leaving it to uh, immigration to interpret, which means you're not being a lawyer, right? I mean, wh why, why are we here if we're not going to identify issues and then, and then be persuasive and use whatever we can to help them understand it? So I always look at as being an immigration attorney is being a litigator on paper. Right. Like I what what we've done and for the we, we invented a thought, a process, because I see the old fragment models and things like that. I'm like, man, these just aren't good enough. So I said, you know, this is equivalent to um, walking into a court and saying I waive my opening statement and I'm not going to ask any direct uh, questions to my client. I'm going to leave it to my opposing counsel to attack them and then I'll try to rehabilitate. That's how most immigration attorneys process their visas, right? So we invented a briefing process because we're doing so many EB1s and O1s that we would tell an opening statement, right? Why not tell the story about why this person's good for America? There's no requirement that says we can't, right? So we would, we would lay it out. Here's who they are. Here's why they're good, all these sort of things. And then we would go through the legal analysis like you would a litigation brief, right? What's the standard? It was amazing to me that most immigration attorneys would never tell immigration what the law was. Right. And they would allow them. And, and we all know coming out of other bodies of law that agency law is just relaxed anyway. Right. I mean, if you're at federal case, federal courts are really, really meticulous. State courts aren't as much. But but agency law is a step above night court. You know, they <laughs> kind of do what they do. And, and they're like, well, the regulation might say this. This is how we think it is. And so I'm like, why do we let them frame the question? right? The question's framed by the regulations, then they're held to a standard of what their policy memorandum says, right? We're not held to it because that's just their bosses or their policy people's interpretation of it, but we can use it against them. And I'll do it all the time with our deal. I'll say, here's what the reg, plain language of the reg says. Here's what your policy memo instructs adjudicators to do. Here's an AAO decision that may or not be precedential, but it is persuasive. And mm -hmm. USCIS got knocked down last time they tried to make this argument. And then if there's a federal court case, we'll do that. And what one of my favorite federal court cases is called BSTEC. And it's a Supreme Court case, which means for anybody out there that doesn't know what this is all about, the Supreme Court law, their interpretation is it, it's not open for suggestion. <laughs> it is what it is. And what BSTEC says that a vocational expert's opinion is evidence, right? And so what immigration attorneys do or adjudicators to do all the time, they they will say that the expert opinion is a testimonial. It's not. And they will say it's not persuasive for whatever reason they want to say. When the Supreme Court says 
that opinion is evidence, right? You don't have the opportunity to say that opinion isn't any good because they're experts and you're not, and you're not putting up your own expert, right? So if, if you think about it like a litigator, they could go out and hire their own expert in whatever this body of expertise is, but they never do ever, right? And so we've created this briefing system in this technology. And I had a really interesting case where they said my client met four of the three criteria for the EB-1, right? Which I've never seen four met before and denied in my, in my history. Uh, but I looked out and I'd seen it once. And it was in San Francisco and they litigated and they won. So my guy happened to be a, um, a, an architect for a massive software company we've all heard of in the Bay Area. And I went right back to the same judge and said, I'm going to sue him. And I, and I got him to reopen and give us the approval on the argument that they, that they did not follow the beast tech ruling that an expert's opinion is evidence. And they didn't even consider it, right? They like they ignored it, which is what they do, right? They just, they gave yeah. us a, a one page denial that just says it's insufficient. And they didn't say, here's what the expert opinion is. And here's how we disagree with it. They acted like it wasn't even in there. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, to, to kind of use this as an opportunity to explain what we do is arbitrary and capricious. And that's the standard for violation of the federal law, which is the Agency mm -hmm. Procedures Act to then litigate these cases if you ever do that. And very few immigration attorneys will litigate their cases. They'll do yeah. motions to reopen and or they just accept it. Is because there a reason why, John? Is there a reason? Like, is there a negative yeah. for doing it, so? Well, the reason they don't, I believe, is one, it takes a while. Two, to, to bring a federal lawsuit takes a lot of effort and time and therefore it's expensive. And three, most immigration attorneys didn't have a background like Ingrid and I did that they litigated before they got into this. They, they have literally just put these packages together and, and that's it. Right. But if you litigate, that's the finish line. That's like, mm -hmm. I can take this to somebody else who will make a decision and you can't just say what you're going to take. But I, I think it's such a different body of law, right? That most immigration attorneys are not litigators and those in immigration that do court based stuff, are doing it within the parameters of an agency-based deportation hearing and stuff like that and are not used to going up against hardened, really good attorneys on the other side that, you know, that are from big law and have Harvard backgrounds and stuff like that. And, and you, you kind of need to have that to go into that, those courts, in my opinion, because they don't mess around. The judges don't mess around. That's their cases, not your cases. And you can easily stumble. So you really have to have some of that experience a lot of times to do it. And, I, and, and there are guys that, and, and women that do focus on that. And they, they oftentimes are the recipients of our cases. So you go find these guys um, and then they go, hey, I got this denial. Would you litigate on behalf of my client? But it's usually peer, uh, very expensive. And most people that are applying for a, a visa or a company that's just like, ah, I'll go on to the next person. Um, or reapply, right? Yeah, re re reapplying is a lot cheaper, and, yeah. and many times you'll get a better answer. <laughs> yeah, cool. I agree, and I, I like to put my cases together thinking about what if I have to take this to court, right? And I think that's why I like the EB1s and the EB2 and IWs, yeah. because you get to, you know, tell your client's story on paper and really make a make an argument, right? And um, and I also always think about the idea of preserving the record. I want to preserve the record mm -hmm. for my client in the event it goes that far. 
Um, you know, yeah, I agree that most times the clients are not willing to, they don't want to start their immigration journey litigating against the government, right? But right. there's such value to getting, um, you know, a, a federal court to to say, no, this was wrong, right? And and maybe creating a precedent or something like that, that can be beneficial to, to another case. Um, but it is hard. It is expensive. And a lot of people who are immigrants don't want to necessarily do that. But us as attorney, I, attorneys, I think, you know, um, it's, it's so great when you win on those terms because mm. you're like, okay, I was right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think too, a lot of times we can't be scared of challenging the government on what this means and what the law is or how it should be interpreted. And like that case, you know, if you're not doing your job, you know, it's up to us to, Hey, you're not following the law, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny you say that because it's not the government. It's, it's some person, right? Right. That, yeah. uh, that uh, thinks that they, because of their position, that they can rack somebody's life. And that's what they're doing, right? And, and um, you know, behind that case is a human being that had a dream of coming to this country or a company that wanted to hire from the world because it really needed the talent um, that, that they found. And some bureaucrat really just made a decision that they're not good enough. And when, when extraordinary people get turned down, it's devastating to them. They don't understand it. And, and ironically, the people that are turning them down usually can't hold a candle to them um, in whatever it is, but they're just making a decision. Nope, you're not good enough. And it, it's really rough. Um, you know, what I love about you know, employment-based immigration is the percentages are really high that you're going to get them approved. And that's why I don't really do with much removal because I think it's the opposite, right? I think a lot of people, there's just no answer, right? They, they right. came in without authorization or they've been out of status. There's, you know, other than the U's uh, and, 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 and V visas that have come up, there's not usually a lot that you can do, maybe marrying an American, but that's not even an absolute for a lot of people. But on the employment base, you win most of the time. And, and it's really, it's really nice and it's very rewarding. And again, that's why I ended up in this body of law and have, have been there the minute I found it, I, I fell in love with it. Can we maybe shift the conversation yeah. back to cases when it comes to, I always love, and I, I know you guys do as well. We, we always like to ask the question um, about a special case that stood out for you. So why don't we ask you that question, Attorney Perez, about you know a specific case, whether it was negative or positive, that really, it stuck with yeah. you. So um, this was an EB2 and IW case that I did earlier this year, actually. And this was, a, this was one of those cases that this client came to the United States. Well, this client tried an L before. They had a business in their country. They tried an L. The L was denied. Um, I don't think that, you know, they, they didn't quite understand what an L entailed. They were here in the United States on a student status. Um, and the client had... Prior to that, while living in their home country, they opened a business here in the United States. That was the basis of their L, right? They hired an entire team here in the U.S. They had maybe 10 people, I think, you know, running his whole operation. He was just really the investor. And they were here in the United States, you know, on a, on a, stu on a student visa. They had gone to different attorneys and they were trying to figure out how can they stay, right? It was a couple, they had three kids or they have three kids, little kids, and they just wanted to be here and, and one day work on the business. And we had a bunch of meetings because this was a very unconventional client. And um, when we talked about the possibility of an EB2, 
um, you know, we were going on the entrepreneurial side. So at that point, it was just really about exploring what their business was and how can I make an argument that this business was in the national interest, right? And we had a like two meetings before I agreed to take on their case. You know, the first meeting was with the wife and, and she was the one that kind of handled everything for her husband. And we really had a great, you know, we kind of hit it off. I think our personalities just kind of matched. So then she came back a second time with her husband and we were talking again. And this client really, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, he was working at a gas station, you know, he, and then he started his entrepreneurial journey. And over the course of 15 years, he was able to build this incredible company. And what he did is he buys machinery, uh, manufacturing equipment, all these types of things that the government sells at auction and he repairs them. He has this company that repairs all this machinery and he sells them in the secondary market. Right. And then in talking about this, I was thinking about, okay, you know, what are the benefits of a business like that? And I thought, well, for one, he is helping, you know, he's buying directly from the government. Right. So it's bringing more money into the, in the pocket of, of our, of our government. Right. Second, he is repairing all these machines that are no longer functioning and making them available to the secondary market. And it's keeping them out of our landfills, right? It's keeping our, our you know, lands cleaner or whatever. And also this idea of a circle, circular economy, right? How can we reuse, recycle, find more efficient ways to use our products and make these machineries that, that you know, these machines that are still that are, are after you fix them, they're in great working condition. And maybe it can help a small manufacturer, a small business that is, you know, just opening up and maybe don't, they don't have the ability to buy, you know, brand new equipment or constantly upgrade or things right. like that. Right. Um, and he was working with small manufacturers all over the United States and actually all over the world. Um, he even had medical equipment that he would resell to doctors that he would fix and, and resell. And um, we went the entire Angle, you know, for his EB2, I presented him as an entrepreneur and I relied a lot on the other comparable evidence. If you don't have evidence that meets, meets the other criteria oh, yeah. and he was approved nice. and I was surprised. I was shocked because I was like, listen, I don't like to take on the case when, that I don't feel I can win. Right. Because I like to I like to win. And I know these cases are expensive and the clients are putting a lot of hope and, and you know, they're putting all a lot of hope in that. Right. But we had a several meetings and they understood that it was the very, you know, it was 50, 50. Uh, but at the end of the day they won. And I was like, wow. Right. And they wanted premium process. And I was like, don't do premium process because we're going to get an RFE. And right. like, no, 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 we just need to know if we get an RFE, it's okay. Like, you know, they had no problem. They didn't have the patience. Saying, like, no, they just wanted an answer because they were like, you know, if, if this is not going to happen, we're just going to pack our bags and we're going to move back to our country. Did they get and an they RFE? Like, no. It what? was approved in seven yeah. days with a with premium process and I was waiting for the visa bulletin. Well, um, I got questions. Right, Ashley right. or yes, you guys want to uh, pop in and talk with Ingrid a little bit about this case? You guys are on mute if you're talking. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too many comments. That's awesome. I can't believe you didn't even get an RFE. I know. <laughs> I was shocked too. Yeah. I was so shocked. Yeah. Yes, you got any thoughts on it? No, I was like, when she said, um, when you said that you didn't get an RFE, I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Especially because yeah. like yeah. with Joan's example, you get cases where you're like, I meet four of these seven qualifications and they still throw it back at you. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think too, it just like, sometimes you get lucky with that officer and it goes back to what John said, right? It's not necessarily the government. It's some person who's, who's deciding. And I always think of the immigration officer. I think of them as like a blank slate, right? I'm like, I'm going to assume that this person has no idea what being a business owner is. And I am going to explain to them, you know, and not in the condescending way, obviously, but I just want to make it very simple for them to understand um, what it is that this person does and why it is important, right? So I think that being a, a good writer, a good storyteller, you know, being able to, to formulate it. your ideas and express them on paper and have the documentation to back it up is really what these cases are about. And I think that they are difficult. They are hard to put together. But I think that um, with the EB2 and IWs, what I like about them is because it is that if you're kind of, you know, aware of what's going on in the world, you can have an idea or you can come up with, with an argument to make on behalf of your client, right? So for example, right now, people who are, you know, with STEM degrees, they, they are a hot commodity for the United States. And if you're aware of what's going on, if you know, you know, that AI is really hot right now, right? You have that person with that background you can make an argument and the internet is wonderful and the government reports and all these things are wonderful to just back up your argument. And I think if you're resourceful and savvy in that way, it kind of gives you an edge when you're doing these cases. I love that you got it done. Um, I also love that you thought through why is this in the national interest? And I think that so much of immigration is just duplicative that it doesn't either invite in people that are thinking outside of it um, or people get too busy and they just make the same argument over and over again. Right. I, I think there's a lot of people in our space that are literally doing the same thing over and over and over. And they don't they don't take on these cases. They don't know how to do these cases or they try to do these cases in the way they would do those cases. Right. And that's what's mm -hmm. different. And, and I find this great that you I, I wouldn't have jumped to the recycling element. I, I love that, that that's where you went with it because that is helpful to us. And the cool thing about the national interest waiver is that it's broad. And so it, 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 it's really there for you to be creative if you want to be, but you have to be creative or you won't, it won't occur to you. Right. So it takes right. an inquisitive mind. And then it, and I want to ask you a couple of questions on the anatomy of this case, uh, just to see what you did um, and to see, you know, what ideas are of attorneys, because you already got it done, right? So yeah. if you were coming to us the first time, it's like, what would you guys do about it? We probably have all these ideas. So I'd like to deconstruct it just for the sake of looking at it like lawyers look at things. So um, when you came up with the idea of the recycling, how did that come into your mind? Did they tell you that? Did you think it through? And what did you do once you had that idea? I think I, I thought of that because I was thinking of like the idea of the circular economy. Once I started to do a little research on how I can make, you know, a business plan out of this or how I could present this to the government, I was thinking of the circular economy and I'm, a, I'm, I'm the environment is like super important to me. Right. So I, 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 this is something I always think about. So mm -hmm. I was like, you know, what he's really doing is he's repurposing these machines and these equipment, you know, this equipment and, and reusing it, right. It's reuse, recycle, you know, it's just that, that circular economy, that cycle, you know, and, and to me, it was just very obvious, you know, it wasn't something that I really had to like think about too much. It was just something that I definitely knew I wanted to, to talk about in the case. And 
and, so and to me, we just about, let's talk about how you talked about it. Okay, so you got this idea, recycling. It's there. What did you do to gain more knowledge on it, if anything? And how did you articulate it? And where did you articulate it in the case? So um, that came to me in the conversations, the initial conversations that I had mm -hmm. with the client before I decided to take on the case. So I always tell clients when I'm, you know, deciding whether or not to take on an EB2 or an EB1, like explain to me what you do in very simple terms, mm -hmm. right? It's your opportunity to really make me understand so that I can explain to the officer. I so say the it, same thing. Yeah. If so I can't me, understand what you do, then the officer is right, not going right, to be able right. to. Exactly. So it's like, take me through your processes. How did you begin? Tell me your whole entire story. And, and then I just ask a ton of questions. Right. And then from that point, I just start thinking about, okay, you know, my strategy is coming to my mind. And in those conversations, I had the idea of the recycling. So I said, okay, we're going to present you as an entrepreneur because he didn't have, first of all, he didn't have a college degree. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't qualify him as an EB2 through advanced degree or equivalent, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, we have to go with exceptional ability. So we're going to go with your exceptional ability as an entrepreneur. The guy had just gotten GD from his country not that long ago. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I, I didn't have much to work with. So I, um, I, I encouraged him to, while we're working on the case, I encouraged him to, you know, um, maybe get some, some memberships in, in a, like, mm. you know, set up his company as much as he could here in the United States. Obviously he was here with the, he's here with the student status. So it's limited what he could do. Right. But he's the investor of the company. So there's some things that he could do. Um, so we worked on the prongs that we could. Right. And I used a lot of that comparable evidence. And I basically showed, I created sort of like a mini L1 where I explained that he had this company in Brazil that was very, very, and I basically said, look, he's already done it. And he's doing it here in the United States. You know, he's going to continue doing it. I had all of his employees write letters on his behalf. Mm -hmm. And he hired like his manager, the one that takes care of the entire business. He's a, he's a veteran. You know, he, he, he's somebody that has been working with him since he started the company while he was living abroad. Right. And he did this whole thing. And I had his bookkeeper, his account, write A, a letter explaining the economic impact that he's going to have. I wrote, you know, I had all of his employees write letters saying we want to keep working and he has the potential of growing this business. And he had plans to open up another office location on, you know, the Canadian border because he wanted to do, um, you know, he wanted to export and things like that. So um, I created a business plan mm -hmm. um, that explained all of this and it took many revisions. And I show that he, his company through his employees were in the process of actually doing what he's saying he's going to do, right? They were already buying from the U.S. government. And he he was made, you know, he was able to take and all his tax returns, obviously. And I was able to show that he had, you know, grown significantly in the span of like three years. His company was making millions of dollars, right? So he has the potential to employ, you know, dozens of people. He's the right really position. He's yeah. the right background. He's done it. Those are right. all the prongs of the... Of the yeah. The, so that's what I did. And, you know, did you just, wrap in the recycling element into the business plan? I did. Yeah, I did. And what I like to do. Yeah. So and what I like to do sometimes, too, I, I love sending photos yep. about, about these yep. cases. So I had him send me photos of his warehouse in, mm -hmm. in Brazil, his office, 
all of his machines, his catalogs. I had him revamp his website, you know, to, to make him more sophisticated and more robust. So, nice. Because at the end of the day, you have to show that the client, that he's well positioned, right? That the person yes. is well positioned. And all these things, your business plan is, 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 it's a real business. It's not something it's aspirational. It's real. Yeah. And here he is really doing it. You know, we have the financials, we have the profit and loss, all of that. So I just really focus on presenting him as an entrepreneur who is working in this really interesting space. And even though, you know, it's not okay. Yes. He's buying things from, you know, auction and fixing them, but really what he's doing is not just that he's, helping the circular, he's helping create a circular economy that's going to benefit so many critical infrastructure sectors in the United did States. You, did you use an expert to evaluate that component of it? I used a business plan company. Uh, I'm not but talking about the business a- plan. I think that's that was great that you did that. But uh, the one, and, and look, here's the great thing. It's, you can come at this in so many different ways. What was What was jumping out to me would have been, and it, look, it worked, and it worked without an RFE, so you did it right. Uh, but, you know, if you're deconstructing it, what what could you do on that? I would think I would get somebody from that knew about the circular economies, the things that you're talking about, that had a background in it, right? Because it's obviously yeah. your idea, but you're an attorney, so therefore you're an extension of him. Um, so you on yourself, you can say it, but if you if you had somebody that was into recycling or something like that, say, Hey, I'm an expert in this field because of my background in this, and I'm evaluating this case on the impact it's going to have on the United States economy. And then you bring in some source material on what that would do, right? Then they can evaluate that and inside it. And again, that beast tech case says that this is evidence, right? Yeah. And, and it then takes it from just being your idea where it can be a he said, she said decision into giving you an advantage of having the expert say, here's why it's in the national interest. So therefore, adjudicator, you don't have to make a call on this. All you got to yeah. do is follow this one. So that's what I, you know, just as we're talking about it, that might have been a nugget. So Ingrid, your case had no expert letters at all? No, I didn't use any expert opinion letters. And I know, like, thinking back, you know, I, I don't know why I did it. I, I, I don't remember exactly. I was like, I think I wanted to keep it. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to submit this. Yeah as strong as I can on the entrepreneurial angle, right? Yeah, With sure. a business plan that explains all of this. It's a good case, right? I mean, yeah. And, and um, in my, in my argument, in my brief, I, I was able, during my research, I was able to find a lot of um, studies, like published, mm-hmm. published articles, journals, yeah. like that, that talked mm-hmm. about the circular economy. I found a lot of government resources, like current government reports and things like that talked about, you know, the United States pushing towards a greener economy. And and I highlighted, you know, anytime they mentioned circular economy, and I was like, see, this is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. And I was just point to that, you know, Um, you did the the thing. And that's what we when we talk about one of the mistakes that I think a lot of immigration practitioners make and what our clients want is they think they can just get a letter from somebody to say something, right? right? So even an expert letter, even though the BSTEC case says that it's evidence, if it doesn't have source material, it's just somebody there that's on this witness stand that you can't cross-examine. So they, they'll knock it down and they'll think, I got this important person to say I'm good at whatever. So, you know, one technique uh, would be to to have all that evidence that you have and have an expert explain what's important in it, right? And then so then it's sort of a component that and you take and refer to the expert analyzed this and said this, and then I'll put that in my brief. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you just did it directly and it worked and it, and it should have, right? I mean, you just yeah. said, here's the, here's the, uh, the knowledge and this is why it is what it does. But one other thing that you could add now, again, some cases are better than others, right? You, you didn't need it. You already had it all, right? But sometimes you're, you're scraping and you're at the beginning or they're, they have an idea and they don't have the Brazilian company that made any money. They just have an idea. Right. right. And that's when and also John, what you're saying you is, uh, is, is future proof that if you need to one day take it to court, you can now say, Why? listen, we yeah. did extra letters and right. that's evidence. And so yeah. you have like, see, that's that's what it makes a deterrent for that, yeah. because if you have an expert evaluating it and saying it's good and then they come in and they just disagree with it. Right. They can't. They, the the yeah. case says they can't. Whereas if you put it in there with them, they could just say it's not substantial enough. I don't think yeah. it's significant. So that's a that's a great point, Pierre. That the non-attorney in the room came up with the nugget that would have been what it would have been the violation of the APA would have been not looking at the expert's opinion and giving it the gravitas that the Supreme Court says that it yeah. is. So wonderful case, Ingrid. Thank you very much uh, for sharing that with us. That's a lot of fun, and congratulations on that. That Thank great you. win. Is there anything additional that you wanted to add to it, Attorney Perez, on the case? I think that, you know, um, I, I do use expert opinion letters on, on, on quite a few cases, too, but I've also uh, not used them on cases and, and gotten them sure. through. Of course. Um, I think sometimes for me, I make the strategic decision to not include them directly in the case, like on the first initial filing, if I think that you know, if I get an RFE, maybe this is something mm. that I can save, you know, for an yeah. RFE. Yeah. Good point. From a strategy perspective, you want yeah. to have something to reply yeah, something with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think maybe, you know, thinking back, maybe in this case, because I was expecting an RFE, which yeah. is the premium process, I, I may have just thought, you know what, I'll save this in my back pocket in case I need to, because I wasn't quite sure. I was I was shocked that it was approved without an RFE, you know, and and I was very very happy. And the client was ex like ex like you don't understand. Like this family <laughs> cried. They yeah, went to cool. church and prayed for me, and I'm like, great, do yeah. all that, you know. It, it was really amazing. So and um, as a bonus, you saved him, you know, the money. Yeah, for the, so for the expert. I think letters, you so. make you know you have to kind of look at the case as a whole, and 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 having that. Yeah. Um, you know, collegiality with other immigration attorneys that practice in this space is really good because we were able to share trends, right? We yeah. know that right now there's a lot of RFEs coming. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually am expecting one because I told my client not to do premium process and he insisted. And I have this other case that I just filed a little while ago for an EB1 and I have an RFE coming. I'm like, great, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, we see these trends and we're able to sort of adjust accordingly, which is nice. Very good. Perfect. Well, Pierre, I thank think you've hit so the uh, bewitching hour of 12 noon. I want to thank all of you for joining today's collab. Just a quick reminder as a disclaimer to everyone watching and listening, nothing we spoke about today has been legal advice. Please don't take anything as legal advice unless you have a, um, if, if you'd like legal advice, please do consult with one of our attorneys in this call uh, and a client attorney relationship and with that being said i want to thank all of you for being here and teaching all of us so much but also it's just beautiful to see attorneys talking to attorneys and collaborating and not feeling intimidated to share ideas because that's that's how everyone grows so thanks and have a wonderful weekend thank you, you too have a good weekend, weekend.